Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Kim and Mark. How are you today, Mark? Good, Kim. I'm excited to talk about some topics today. All right. We got a whole bunch of wine stuff to talk about, some seasonally appropriate for the summer topics. The first one being, as we are heading into wedding season, how to choose wine for your wedding. I like this topic, Kim, because it's not really mentioned much in the wine world about how to go about choosing wines for your wedding. But I was thinking, I was married a lot longer than you, <laughs> but do you remember even thinking about wine when you were planning your wedding? Oh, absolutely. I was in the business by that point. So I tried to pay good attention to the wines that we would be serving at our wedding. But often I don't think that people do. I think that the wines that are served at a wedding, it's sometimes that's a little bit of a throwaway topic. You know, you spend a lot of time picking the menu or picking the cake, flowers, things like that. But then what people are drinking ends up being a little bit of an afterthought. So I thought that this article from Wine Enthusiast had some really good advice for anybody getting married who maybe doesn't want to think too, too much about the wines that they're going to serve at their wedding. And like you mentioned, Kim, you see all the time these wedding halls that have, they have maybe a night where people, couples go and they're looking at the bands and the cake and the venue, right? And brides are always going crazy looking for the dresses, but they're not really pushing the wines, I don't feel. Right. The same way. I do find that especially if you're using a hall or you're using and event space that already has kind of a either a caterer attached to them or a package with food and wine that there's like a list of you know depending on how big the place is could be a small list could be a long list and you're just like okay choose choose a wine (laughs) choose a bubbly choose a white choose a red and they don't give you I think too many options and sometimes it's not the best quality or the highest quality wines so some of these bits of advice were a little bit of thinking outside the box when it comes to choosing what wines to use. And it's surprising for me that they don't spend more time because it's a real money maker for those venues for the wine list. And there are some, like you said, they gave some good tips and one of them was selecting it based on a story of something that you're sharing as a couple. Right. Make it something meaningful to you. And I think that this works a little bit better if you are having your wedding in a location where you can choose from whatever is available in your state for the wines. And I don't think that that's really the reality for a lot of people. If you're working with a particular venue that says, no, you have to choose from our list, but you can still sometimes make it work. You know, did you guys meet in college and you are in California? Well, maybe there's California winery that is meaningful to you. Or did you travel abroad with your future spouse and that has some memories attached to it? If you went to France, maybe choose a French wine. Things along those lines. Make it make it personal. And then there's a story behind it that then you can tell your guests. Yeah, I thought that was good advice. And they also said if you don't have a story, think of a way of developing a story. Visit a vineyard, a region or something. Take and, a wine and tasting connect. class together yeah. and then use one of those wines if there was one in particular. Or if you have a favorite restaurant, ask the bartender, did they have a favorite? And then you can kind of build it off that or particular cuisines that you like. Things that define you as a couple. Yeah, I like that. 
I, I like that too. idea. The other idea they had was matching wedding colors to the wine, which I, I thought was out there. <laughs> I right? never thought of that before. It's like you, you think about matching your flowers, but I'm like, ooh, the colors of your wine. <laughs> but in the age of social media where everybody's the Instagram where you want colorful photos, it, I can see that. Yeah. Rosés or orange wines or something like that. And I think that that is what informs this bit of advice a little bit more. It's the pictures and the social media and how is this going to look and how is the theme going to be tied together with the food and the wine and the, the dresses and the decor and things along those lines. So it's been a long time for me, but I the first thing you always think of when you go to a wedding is the toasting wine, right? Mm-hmm. The sparkler. And it seems everybody just goes with the cheapest you can get. They're doing a toast, people raise the glass, they might sip it. They think of it as a waste, right? Is and that I think that that is so unfortunate because there is so much bad bubbly out there that is being used for toasts and wedding uh, weddings. I don't know how many weddings I've been to where it's just like the bubbly that they use is just terrible. <laughs> but it is sort of a shame if people don't like sparkling wine and so the wine for the toast is just not going to be consumed. So I think that that has a lot to do with it too. But for people like myself who really love bubbly, that's pretty much all I drank at my wedding. We had a sparkling wine, we had a white and we had a red and I think I had a whole bottle of that bubbly all to myself. Well, that's what it was supposed to be. Right? <laughs> that's right. right. Well, that, whole br- that brings up the whole next item they mentioned was how to manage the budget. And one of the things on the budget is what do you want to serve or how much do you want to serve? And you mentioned you like sparkling, so you use sparkling. But you can ask your guests, what do you want to drink that? So you're not wasting maybe all your money on red wine or that no one likes. Right. If you know know that you have a cocktail crowd, maybe have a martini bar. If you know that your future father-in-law absolutely loves scotch, you know, maybe you do something with that. I think it's important to plan it around your particular group of people who will be at your wedding because your group is unique, just like you're unique. Yeah. And you do need to, you know, pay attention to what is the makeup of the crowd that's gonna gonna be there. You know, if they're if you're a big Italian family, you might be drinking a little bit more than a lot of other people. Yeah, I think the bottom line is know your guest. The the, the person who's gonna recommend what to use and the volume to use doesn't know your family or your guests if they're drinkers or not drinkers. They're going to give you some calculated number, hundred guests, they're gonna have two glasses each. It's all a calculation that you really can't figure it out. I mean, I I would recommend Mm -hmm. doing it yourself, calculating it. But depending on how well established the event venue is, I feel like they can get pretty good at that. I was actually really surprised that ours worked out as far as the quantity because I thought that was like, there's no way that this amount of wine is going to serve my entire group. And amazingly, it did. So I think that's that. did you calculate it yourself? No, they did. And they were like, all right, for the number of people that you have, you need two cases of bubbles and two cases of white and two cases of red. And I'm like, that's not nearly enough for my crowd. And that was for dinner wines. That wasn't including reception stuff. But for dinner, it was totally spot on. And I was really, really surprised. So I'm going to disagree with you on that no, one. And I, I'm going to no, say, trust your trust your event professionals I with that one. I think what more I was saying was they're going to give you a number, but you can use, there's all sorts of things online to calculate the volume. So I guess it's more to double check that they're not overselling mm-hmm. you. Maybe. Oh, more right. Okay. Trust I, They do know the business, obviously, and many times I use those calculators when people come to me for volume, and they do seem spot on, but you want to just double check it because you're paying good money for that. And you do know your crowd. 
I don't like when you don't agree. I so know. I was saying my point <laughs> Every there. once in a while. <laughs> yeah. And the next thing they talked about is ask if you could only be charged with what was opened. So if they tell you you need 20 bottles and you only open 18, what's their policy? So I mm-hmm. think that's a good recommendation. Yeah, it's good to have that knowledge going into it. And then again, you don't have to spend an arm and a leg. And there probably will be a pretty substantial markup depending on how you're getting the wines. But if you are able to bring in your own alcohol, that definitely definitely helps with the cost. If you can go to a local store um, and say, hey, we're getting married, we need this much wine, try to look at what you've got for your budget and work it that way. But our sweet spot for prices for wines is, what would you say? Mine is like 10 to 25 for yeah. well, completely I mean, reasonable. Like that, it's a life event. You'd want to probably go up a little bit. but You could, but if not if you've got 200 people that you're pouring and wine for. The other thing you have to think about too is if you're bringing it into the venue, they probably have some sort of service fee. So you have to weigh if it's worth paying five bucks for them to open it and serve it more than mm-hmm. what you already paid for the wine. Right. So, so do some research into your pricing. And if they do give you a list of wines at the event venue that says this Pinot Grigio is going to be $35 a bottle, I would say just do a little bit of your own research to figure out if that is a reasonable price for that wine. And you mentioned other ideas like the cocktail bars. There's other trends where they have sangria bars, just wine cocktails instead Mm of actual putting wine bottles. Right. And there was also a recently I saw another idea where I can only relate it to, I guess, Willy Wonka. Did you ever see Willy Wonka where they go in with their hats and coats and there's a wall and the hand comes out yes. and grabs the coat? Well, there's this new thing called the wine wall where it's like a hedge and people's hands are hanging out of it holding the wine. So you walk up to the wall and actually grab it from like a human hand. So it's more of a visual so, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Just a new gimmick to, to <laughs> greet you with your wine, which I thought was pretty cool idea. Interesting. So. And then I think a final thing is ask friends and family. If you have knowledgeable wine people in your circle of friends, certainly reach out to them and be like, hey, what do you like? What do you recommend? What direction do you think would be a smart way for us to go? So utilize those people in your life because they are part of this wedding celebration as well. Do you think, Kim, that a lot of times I hear they put a bottle on a table, a white on the table, a red on the table. Do you think that is worth it to just have wine readily available on a wedding table or just let them order it? I do. That's how we did it. And I felt that that made it a little bit more casual and I think a little bit easier for people so that they didn't have to decide whether they wanted a red or a white right at the beginning of their meal. Did so, you even follow up if anyone did? Did there you was, know? I there mean, wasn't busy, anything left right? over at the really? end, so I'm assuming everybody so enjoyed the wine. So you saw it actually gone? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. Surprised you weren't busy. I was busy drinking <laughs> bubbly. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you would like more information about Kim... Please follow her on her webpage at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we want to explore a story that was in 750.com, exploring rosé winemaking. And this is a very hot trend. We've talked about rosé a lot in the past. And basically, they went over the methods of making rosé. It's specifically focused mostly on France and Spain, but these methods, Kim, are used all over the world. Right. So it's the methods that can sometimes determine what the style of the rosé is. The grape variety is also important. And then another thing that they touched on in this article was more the characteristics that you could expect buying rosés from a bunch of different places across the, the world. 
world, which I thought was very handy for people too, because there is a lot of rosé out there now. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people only knew California White Zinfandel and maybe if they were rosé savvy, Provence. But that was pretty much it. But now we have all of these other places that produce really wonderful rosés from a lot of the times they're native grapes and they're very interesting for people, I think, to explore some of these different styles. So there's a few things, Kim, that I think people probably don't know as much as there are three different methods of making rosé, and I don't think many people really care how it's made. I right? don't really think either, no. And I, then the, I mean, for basically for people there, just to let people know that rosé is made from red grapes, and they only spend a little bit of time in contact with the juice and the skins, and that's what gives it its color. But other than that, I'm not sure how much people understand or really even kind of care yeah. about how it's made. And like you said, uh, rosés are made with red grapes, but red grapes can also make white wine, but white grapes cannot make red wine. Right. So It's all about skin contact, people. So let's talk about the three methods, Kim. The first one was the maceration method. Right. So this is the most popular that you'll see these days. So what happens is grapes will come into the winery, red grapes, and they will be crushed as if a red wine was to be made. And then the juice and the skins will sit in contact with each other for a predetermined amount of time, depending on how dark the winemaker wants that rosé to be. So it could be two hours, it could be 10 hours, it could be up to say 20 hours. And then that juice is separated from those solids. And what you're left with is pink juice. At this point, it's not really fermented yet. This is more of, sometimes we call it a cold soak if it happens before fermentation, or if natural yeasts are present, then the fermentation may have started a little bit. And then that juice goes on to ferment and become wine. So that is this most used method of rosé production. In that maceration time, Kim, as you mentioned, we had done an event where the wine name was 11 minutes. So they actually let it have skin contact for 11 minutes. That was it. And then they put it in a tank for 11 hours. So everybody varies that time to get certain qualities out of out of the wine. Mm-hmm. So the next method was the Sanye method. Did I say it right, Kim? I know you're always on me. About yeah, I think this one's right. <laughs> right. Sanye method. And only about 10% of rosé production uses this method. And it is popular in Napa and Sonoma. And what happens with this one is it's a little bit different because the winemaker is picking those grapes with the thought in mind that they are actually going to make two different wines out of this bunch of grapes, this collection of grapes that they have. So they, again, start with the same method as we uh, described in the maceration method, where the grapes and the skins and the seeds and the juice and everything are all mixed together. But the fermentation begins while all of that stuff is mixed up. And then a portion of the pink juice is pulled away from the rest of the container, again, after 10, 12, 20 hours. But then the rest of the juice is kept in the fermentation vessel in contact with the skins. So you have a red wine that will be made from that. And then you have a small amount of pink wine that has been separated. Interesting. Yeah. Geeky, Different. Geeky. Totally uh, geeky. Maybe that's why people don't care how the rosé is and made. And this is right? a very traditional French way of making rosé, but I don't really think that they're, like you said, it's only 10% of rosé production. So there's not all that much that we can kind of get our hands on that are made. that's made in this method. I think because now rosé producers are 
making rosé with intention. Their point is to make rosé. So they pay attention to how is this grape ripening so that I can get it to the optimal flavor to make the style of rosé that I want. So it's it's a little bit more difficult to be going into when am I going to pick my grapes with the mindset of, well, not only do I want to make a nice, big, powerful red wine, but I also want to make this light, fresh, fruity rosé. So I definitely think that that complexity maybe has added to the decline of this style of production. So let's talk about the last method, the blending method, which is very common in how sparkling wine is made. Right. And this just involves a red wine that a little bit of white wine is added to to make a rosé. Or vice versa. A white wine or a little bit of red wine. And honestly, you don't see that much of this in rosé production. You do see it in sparkling production, like you just said. So champagne, rosé champagne, which can be very high end. You know, there's a lot of expensive rosé champagne out there, $60, $70, $100 a bottle that is made in this method. But you'll never see this, say, from Provence. They're not going to use this method of production for a lot of styles of rosé across the world. That was like the glass is half full, half half empty. I was going white, mixing red, and you go the other way. <laughs> typical, typical. I so know. So we had just recently done a rosé event, and I thought it was interesting, Kim, that we should maybe mention some of the questions that we got at the event that people wanted to know about rosé. And the first question we got was, someone was asking if it's healthy to drink rosé wine. I thought this was an excellent question because you do hear a lot about the health benefits of wine and it's usually only associated with red wines, but because rosé is, it's kind of this hybrid monster. It begins its life as a red wine, but then it ends its life as a white wine. Does the rosé have the same health benefits as red wine? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. Do you? Well, have you looked it up? I would, I would say it's better than white wine. I think so. Right? Because yeah. it still has the antioxidants, right? Right. It, it, it's so. a lot of the health benefits in wine, we think, comes from the same compounds that give wines their color and a little bit of the tannins, but it's those anthocyanins that are in the skins that give wine its color that contribute to its health benefits for human beings. So maybe we do get a little bit of that in rose. Yeah. So there's some in there. So I'd say, yeah, yeah. anytime. Yeah. It's good yeah. for you. <laughs> the, the other question I thought was interesting was someone had asked you can they add color into a rosé wine to mm-hmm. make it a certain co- shade of rosé right and so this is different from that method of production where you're adding red to white or white to red this was more i think along the lines of asking is there intentional coloring added and th- we do see this sometimes in some wines where you know your juice might be too light and for marketing purposes you want it to be a darker color so yeah you know winemaker does have access to certain coloring agents that usually are derived from other grapes to to up the color or make it more purple and less orange and all sorts of other things. So I can imagine that this might be out there for rosé producers to do as well. Well, we kind of put that in saying that the EU probably regulates that a little more. But right. being the wine label geek that I was, I looked at the TTB site, Kim, and they do have two categories of adding color. And one was if it's exempt from certification and those that are subject to approval, which was interesting. So there's ones that basically you can use it, but we don't need to check it. And then there's ones that say you can use this, but we need to check that you're using it. That, that makes sense? So what's the 
what wines would fall into which category. Well, there was like the subject to them approval was like the normal like M and M colors, like red dye number one, oh, okay. yellow dye number whatever. The red, white, and the red, the blue, colors. the yellow, red, yeah, yellow and blue, and blue, right? So, and then they had other ones which was like caramel things that would give it coloring similar to what they do for liquor. Okay, caramel coloring things like that. So they can put things in it. I don't know. We won't know if they mm. do, but they can. Tricky. That's why we try to learn as much as we can about what can or should be put on the labels of wines so that can when we get these questions can give you as much knowledge as as we ourselves have. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark by going to his website, franklinliquors.com. And you can find out more information about me at vinitaswineworks.com. So as our regular listeners know, we like to pay attention to trends in the wine industry and what people are drinking and what is out there on the market. And one thing that we've been noticing that is a trend is a slight move away from what we call high acid wines. And this was from an article in one of our favorite websites, Vine Pair. And it's very interesting to see how trends in wine styles do change over time. Yeah, I never knew there was a demand for high acid wines, Kim. I mean, I think they're out there, but I didn't know it was trending as being popular. And now they're saying, has it finally burnt out? So Yeah, I do. I have been paying attention to this because this is a style of wine that I like. And this seemed to come about in response to what we sometimes refer to as the parkerization of winemaking. Robert Parker, who retired a few years ago, but was very instrumental in changing the way that we think about wine writing and wine critiquing and the 100-point system of scoring wines, had a particular style of wines that he really liked. And so therefore, those wines tended to get higher scores. And those were really rich, super ripe, lots of flavor, sometimes a lot of oh, higher alcohol, really packs a punch. So think of your typical Napa Cabernets, big bold Merlots from Sonoma, things like that. And this trend, I feel, was kind of in a response to that. Those of us who don't really like drinking those wines and prefer things that are a little bit more subtle, maybe have higher acid, a little less fruit, a little more European in style. So for me, this is a bit of a wave. It's like away from those super uber fruity wines into something that's a little more crisp and crystalline and just a more mouth-watering kind of wine instead of big and jammy and fruity. So that makes a lot of sense. So they didn't like these real fruit bombs. They wanted something a little more crisp. So they went to the high acid wine. Right. That, and, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know it was trending that way, yeah. but it makes I sense. I would say probably about 10 years ago was when this was starting to, to kind of be a thing. And as we all know, trends change and and progress happens, whether it's in winemaking or whether it's in what consumers want to drink. And now it seems like this style of wine is ebbing a little bit. And we're moving into, I think, actually fruitier whites, um, not necessarily big oaky whites. But for me, this has a little bit more of an emphasis on on white wines, you know, somewhat, somewhat richer. And I think part of that is also because we have we've been having warmer summers and warmer growing seasons. So we do get a little bit more ripeness in our grapes these days. So we're 
talking mainly about maybe cold climate grapes, Sa mm-hmm. Blanc, uh, sparkling wines. Yep. Correct. And then things from Spain, like Albarino and Verdejo and some of the white grape varieties from central Italy that not, not too many people know too much about, but that are really delicious and very, very drinkable. So I want to tell you, Kim, how I, I always kind of explain acidity in wine using a pH number. Mm-hmm. You go back to high school chemistry. Right. So one of the things you can get, we always talk about going to technical sheets on a wine so you can research your wine the winemaker is usually going to tell you the ph level and the acidity of the wine and there's a scale and it goes like 2.9 and 3.9 so i always tell people the lower the number the more acidic the wine should be do you think that's like a too geeky way of explaining acidity in wine that's a pretty geeky way of explaining acidity i mean most people have had high school chemistry so hopefully that will awaken some memory in them of about that ph scale but i think for a lot of people having a number assigned to it isn't going to mean very much i tend to use more descriptive terms but i think it's also a little confusing or difficult just to use ph because you have to also think about say the sugars in the wine which would balance out those acids a little bit more and maybe make that wine not taste as acidic as if it didn't have any sweetness to it at all. So I try to think more kind of big picture as far as how is the fruit, how is the sugar, how is that all balancing out the acid? Yeah, and it can be so complicated because they can acidify it and they can deacidify right. a wine. So you don't know really what you're getting on an acidity level until you taste it. Right, right? And that, that's a, a very, very good point. So let's talk about wine pairing with an acidic wine. And often people come to me with cooking questions. I I need a wine for cooking. And my recommendation always is an acidic Sauvignon Blanc to cook Mm -hmm. with. So what do you recommend a lot for food pairing or cooking that's acidic? I tend to follow that recommendation a lot as well because you want something that has high acid but also has nice fruit. And I tell people to stay away from oaky flavors and stay away from a lot of sugar because that will impact your final dish as well. But going with a wine that has significant acidity to it, you want to make sure that your dish also has some acidity or otherwise the wine's going to taste too tart and the dish may taste a little flat. So it's really all about the balancing of those things because acid can really pack a punch depending on what it is. So if you have a lot of lemon in a dish, you want a wine that has significant acidity to stand up to that. Or if it's something that has a vinaigrette on it, if it's marinated vegetables or salad or a sauce that is based on vinegar, those kind of dishes can really stand up to a wine that has some good acidity to it. And you, you want to think about that. Yeah, I always relate it to a lighter dish, especially with salads or antipasto, where it has that vinegar or mm-hmm. oil. I think the acidity from that type of wine just pairs great. Yeah, it all kind of makes it all play well together. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please go on our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye, bye, bye.